Mystery Podcast. Hi, I'm novelist Sherry Todd Bayshore. Today I narrate another chapter from my romantic suspense thriller, Shadows and Light. Today is Chapter 3, Present Time. The alarm went out quietly, no media yet. Jack Peters made one quick call to the warden, Wayne Pierce, then a second call to the RCMP detachment in the town of Bowdoin. Luke Butler had been the corporal on duty when the call from the prison came in. Sheila Cardinal, the detachment secretary, troubleshooter, and public relations coordinator, breezed in just as Corporal Butler replaced the telephone receiver. Morning, she chirped with her usual smile. Hey, what's wrong with you? Didn't they draw your lottery ticket numbers? Sheila smiled again, but didn't get the response she expected. It never fails. Corporal Butler scowled, rubbing his temples. He had put in five of his eight hours already, but his shifts often went well beyond that. Murphy's Law runs unchecked in this job. Some days I'd be better off in retail at the bay in their shoe department. Ooh, you're not making a whole lot of sense, chum. Sheila dropped her purse into the lower desk drawer. A career in shoes? Ech, all those feet? Besides, what did you think police work was about? investigating the rising price of bread? Sarcasm is rarely funny and never an attractive trait. You can be replaced, you know. Ooh, cranky. And no, I can't be. Replaced, that is. She grinned and picked up her Minnie Mouse coffee mug. So, are you going to share with a humble civilian why you are wallowing in self-pity? Or do you prefer to wallow alone? She pushed her chair away from her desk, poured coffee into two mugs, and walked over to Butler's desk. Thank you, he made a face at her as he took his mug. First, you're anything but humble. You run this place. Second, I'm not wallowing. I'm merely making an observation because history continues to repeat itself. I was just on the phone with Jack Peters, and it seems two of the star boarders at Bowdoin checked out sometime during the wee small hours. Wow, and we're so short-staffed. Yep, nice, huh? He took a gulp. His glance went out of the office window down the town's main street to its still peaceful morning. Only six trucks were parked in the front of the local Bowden Cafe across the street. Are you and John going over right away? Does Eric still have the measles? He turned to face Sheila. That's what I meant by Murphy's Law. John is at the IGA. They had a break-in last night with some prank damage, eggs, dairy, and produce thrown everywhere. Eric isn't doing so good. He doesn't have the measles. The measles have him. So there's just little old me. You could sure use some reinforcements, she sipped her coffee, heading back to her desk in the day's pile of mail. Halfway to her desk, she stopped. Could you borrow someone, say, from Olds or Innisfail or even Red Deer? Corporal Butler's cheerless expression suddenly vanished. I just knew there was some reason why we kept you around here. You're useful as well as ornamental. Sheila's forehead furrowed over her brown eyes, and she stuck out her tongue. Luke took another hefty gulp of his coffee. I don't need to look any further than right down the highway. I should have thought of this right away. I'll call the boys at 941. He reached for his desk phone. But that's highway patrol, Sheila reminded him. Luke paused. I know that, but highway patrol and, he prompted, dog training. Right. We'll probably need the dogs on this one anyway. So with that argument, I can likely convince Neil to get back into the swing of things again for a while. But those dogs are in training. They won't be of any help to you. The only veteran pooch there is Mike. You know that dog's reputation as well as I do. 
Hell, all we need is Mike. He's worth three dogs. Luke gave Sheila the thumbs-up sign, then called the canine training center. Sergeant Neil McKenzie and Corporal Keith Appleton had just returned from hosing down the concrete kennel floors while the young four-leg trainees were out for a free playtime. The officers were about to sit down with a cup of fresh coffee in the day's training schedule for their three nine-month-old recruits when the phone on McKenzie's desk broke into their morning. Sergeant McKenzie here. Neil, it's Luke. You got a heavy day ahead of you. Good morning to you, too. Why is my day schedule so suddenly important to your detachment? I haven't heard from you in weeks. Have you finally got up enough courage to attempt a rematch? Mackenzie grinned as he looked over at Corporal Appleton. Yes, you cribbage wizard, I would, only some other time. I need you and your wonder dog, Mike. I just had a call from Jack Peters. They got two guys who decided to parole themselves last night. Wow. That's what Sheila said, too. Can you meet me at Pierce's office right away? Hell, Luke, I don't know what good we can do. Highway 2 runs right in front of the prison, so to speak. If they flag down a passing car, they're hundreds of miles away by now. Mike isn't that good. True, but we wouldn't mind having that somewhat confirmed. If Mike led us to the highway, then, well, we'd have a place to start. Right now, we have zip. Hold on, Luke. Mackenzie cupped his hand over the receiver mouthpiece. See if Ravi is still here. Tell him I'll need him to start with our new dogs, then bring up Mike. What's going on? Toucans took a walk last night. Luke wants us to help. Wow. Keith disappeared out the office door without further comment. Sergeant McKenzie quietly laid down the receiver on his desktop, then walked over to the corner office window that looked out over the parking lot between the office residence and the dog training compound. He watched as an unmarked RCMP van turned toward the highway entrance. The running figure of Corporal Appleton appeared chasing after the departing vehicle. Keith wouldn't be able to catch up to Ravi. But as Ravi waited at the end of the long driveway for a truck to pass, Keith stooped down, gathered up a golf ball-sized rock from the gravel parking lot, then hurled it toward the waiting van. It made its mark, bouncing off the center of the roof. Immediately, Ravi got out and looked back. Keith motioned for him to return. Mackenzie shook his head, smiling to himself. He returned to his desk to pick up the receiver, still off the hook. Luke, see you in ten minutes. Keith's coming, too. Good. What the hell took you so long? I nearly fell asleep. Well, Keith had a little trouble getting a hold of Ravi so he could cover for us. Mackenzie replaced the receiver and reached the open office door just as Corporal Appleton and Mike came up the stairs. Mike reached the landing two steps ahead of Keith and immediately sat at attention, head up facing his trainer and handler, Neil Mackenzie. Mike's expression was so serious, Neil half expected the dog to lift a paw and salute. The five-year-old German Shepherd was a fourth-generation cop and so far the most superior recruit to ever graduate from the Alberta Canine Training Center. Though it was regulation in public, Mike hadn't worn a leash or a muzzle since he was three. He was the only dog with the RCMP granted such a privilege. Mike instinctively knew at all times where he should be, when he should be there, and what he should be doing. He had a quality that went beyond his police training, and he helped coaching the younger dogs made easier. Mackenzie had returned to training dogs after his promotion ten months before, and the conclusion of a five-week investigation with Mike as a partner searching for marijuana farms in the Alpine Valleys along the Alberta-British Columbia border. 
Since becoming one of the trainers and dog handlers with the RCMP, Neil had gained a great deal of respect for animals in general. He had been a city boy born and raised, and his first close contact with an animal, other than the family cat, was a horse. It had been an awakening experience. He had no idea that horses possessed personalities as distinctive as any human, but one year on the musical ride circuit changed his perception there too. Neil and Keith had met while working undercover on a drug case in Winnipeg, Manitoba. They worked closely together for five years, each one acting as the safety net for the other. That kind of life and death intensity, with total trust in the hands of someone else for ultimate survival, had created a bond that went beyond colleague and friend. After their investigation gathered sufficient evidence for indictments that successfully went to trial, neither officer could work undercover safely for a while. Their new reassignment choice had been the canine training program, with trainers learning their skills at a special class in Calgary, Alberta. Because of their efforts, the dogs Neil and Keith trained were sent to work in both remote and urban areas all across Canada. That was a pretty impressive throw. You're showing off again. Neil shook his head, grinning. You couldn't use your cell phone or perhaps the radio? Or is either of those options too obvious? Yeah, Ravi might have said something along those lines too, but I don't understand his native language of Hindi. When he got out of the car, he wasn't speaking English, so I'm pretty sure he wanted to throw rocks at me. He thought the roof of the wagon was caving in. I feel kind of bad. Keith kept his voice low, glancing back toward the stairs, half expecting the younger officer to appear. Actually, it was purely instinctive. Guess we all have our little specialties. Yours is cribbage and chess, and mine is baseball. Well, if Inspector Laker ever sees that dent and Ravi spills how it got there, you might need to earn your living in baseball, Mackenzie laughed. The gates to Bowdoin Correctional swung open by remote signal, operated by the guard now on duty in the front corner tower. Sergeant Mackenzie parked the canine training van next to the RCMP patrol car, already in the designated visitor parking area. Mike loped evenly between his handlers as they entered the main building and then up the wide front steps to the first floor administration and into the warden's office. The expression on the faces of all three men already seated inside Warden Pierce's office was grim. Keith Appleton nodded to everyone before he took a low-backed chair in the corner of the office. Mike followed him and sat serenely at attention beside Keith. Neil shook hands with Warden Pierce and Jack Peters and then nodded to Luke Butler. Luke nodded a greeting back to Keith, then stared at Mike. Hell, that dog is big. Luke turned back to Sergeant McKenzie. You sure there isn't some horse in him somewhere? McKenzie laughed. Luke, you ask me that nearly every time you see Mike. At the sound of his name, Mike's ears turned and he became even more alert. Keith patted his side and he relaxed. What do you have so far? Mackenzie asked, looking from face to face. Nothing much yet. Luke shifted his shoulders and looked at the men with him in the warden's office. I just got here myself. I didn't want to ask Jack anything until you and Keith arrived. He turned his attention to Jack Peters, whose tired, drawn face told a story in itself. Well, Jack, let's start with you. Peters took in a deep breath and shook his weary gray head. I wish to hell I knew something, but I didn't see or hear a damn thing. Neither did Dennis Hall, though he's not much use. Caught him asleep twice last night during his shift. He's new. 
but none of the four guards posted outside at each of the corner towers saw or heard anything either, and all of them have been here seven years or longer, and each of them were wide awake. You've questioned them already? Sergeant Mackenzie asked. We both did, answered Warden Pierce. All of the night guards are still here if you guys want formal statements. They're waiting down the hall in the staff locker room. Sergeant Mackenzie and Corporal Appleton exchanged a look. Appleton got up and left the warden's office. Mackenzie signaled Mike to stay and lay down. Who were the men who escaped? Corporal Butler asked. Warden Pierce picked up two folders and handed them across his desk to Corporal Butler. The file on top has the background and booking shot of Guy Lester, aged 28. He's a repeat offender for numerous petty crimes, mostly shoplifting and bad checks, stealing from businesses where he worked, but no record of violence. He's a loner. Parents are both deceased. He has an older brother, Steve, aged 29. Steve Lester works on a drilling site in Swan Hills, and he owns an old farmhouse built on a few acres two miles from Nordig. There's been no known communication between the brothers for the last two years. Steve has no record, not even a traffic violation. The second file with a scoop and photo is for Bruce Morgan, age 31. He has a similar crime pattern to that of Lester, but he was a little more brazen with a small business enterprise selling parts from stolen cars, also fencing stolen items from residential break-ins, though again, no record of violence. He's a drifter and a loner too, no close family or other ties. His father was a preacher who threw Morgan out when he was 12. His juvenile record is sealed, but social services did say that his father maintained his son was wicked and depraved. He finished school in a series of foster homes. No one seemed able to cope with him for very long. Mackenzie moved his chair closer to Butler to review the two files. Mackenzie studied the picture of Bruce Morgan. The solemn, gloomy expression looking back at him clearly said, Pee on the world. He was good-looking in a greasy sort of way with thick, dark, wavy hair. The photo of Guy Lester made Mackenzie's stomach cramp. If the man had two pointed ears, he would have looked like a fox. The scraggy, thin, blonde hair framed a face that was disturbing. The sly, stony look in the man's eyes was unsettling because he had seen that look before. Non-violent my ass, thought Mackenzie. This man could kill, and easily. Can you add any additional information at all about these two guys not in their files that might be helpful? Even if it's just a personal hunch, Mackenzie asked instinctively. Jack was uneasy about the question and looked quickly at Wayne Pierce. The warden nodded. Well, Jack rubbed the back of his neck. There's something not right about these two. I mean, there's something not right about all the guys sent here. But these two are spooky. I got nothing concrete, just a feeling after several decades of working here and seeing thousands come and go and come back again. I told Warden Pierce of my suspicions about these two and three others who are still here. I just think they've both committed more serious crimes that they haven't ever been caught for. Lester and Morgan don't have any record of violence on the streets and none here either but they caused a great deal of unrest from time to time with general mischief that always escalated, all real subtle. They both shared a cell at one time or another with nearly every inmate here, but for a while we were moving these two around like chess pieces trying to find someone they could get along with for longer than a week. Then finally, about six months ago, we put the two of them together. They seemed to settle in and tempers in general calmed down. 
They aren't stupid, though Morgan's more beauty than brains. He has a short attention span and works out daily with weights in the gym, never missing a day. He's vain as hell about his looks and build. He combs his hair constantly. Lester isn't much to look at when compared to Morgan, but he's smarter. I mean real smart and well-read. He spends more time in the library than Morgan does in the gym. My guess would be that the entire escape was planned by him. Do you have clothing that either of these two men wore recently? Mackenzie was anxious to get started, so Luke could have an investigation starting point. No, Pierce answered. When Luke called back to tell us you were coming with Mike, I checked with laundry. All inmates were issued clean everything yesterday morning. What about their sheets and their bedding? Is all of that still in their cell room? Neil had a sinking feeling this escape was going to be a professional headache for Luke. The warden looked to Jack Peters. Peters nodded. Yes, the bedding's all there. The cell hasn't been touched. I'd like to take Mike around now. It got a little drizzly this morning, but if any dog can pick up the scent, it's Mike. Sergeant McKenzie motioned for Mike to heal. Warden Pierce remained at his desk. He had a phone call to return already from CBC Television seeking confirmation of a rumored escape. Pierce had no idea how the National Network managed to discover the barest threads of a story much sooner than he would have liked. But the warden needed to calm them before every other media level, from print to radio to web, discovered the breakout far too early to have any answers to most of their questions. Peters led the way out of the main office. The weird part of all this was the door to their room was still closed and locked when the guard came back to check after the head count at breakfast. All of the other doors were left open by the boys when they lined up for breakfast, but I know that door was locked last night. I checked it all myself, along with the others, at 10 p.m. All doors were rechecked again between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. by me personally. Are you saying they got out of a locked room? and relocked it before they escaped, Corporal Butler asked. Looks that way. But I can assure you, Lester and Morgan were both in their beds at 10 p.m., and their door was locked then. I was with Dennis Hall when we checked all of the doors again at 2 a.m. I have to do that because he's still on probation until his training is finished. Are all of the doors locked individually? Mackenzie frowned while he considered how the cons got out of their room-style cells. Yes and no. Each door can lock when it's closed during the day, but it's not connected to an alarm, Jack answered. At night, all of the doors are closed before lights out. When the lights go out, all door locks are then activated at the same time to our central alarm automatically. But we always double-check each door manually. Mackenzie made a general note of the building features. Could Dennis Hall have opened then reclosed an individual door? Nope, Jack shook his head. Once the alarm system has locked the doors, it takes two keys to reopen each cell room door, mine and the guard on duty for that section. It's set up like a safety deposit box, though the value of the contents may be questioned by some. Anyway, if there's a fire, the main system unlocks all the doors if the sprinklers don't put out a fire. Keith Appleton caught up to Jack Peters, Luke Butler and his sergeant, just as they went into cell room 103A. Mike followed, then immediately sat, waiting for instructions. Both beds were neatly made. Too neat. Sergeant McKenzie walked to each bed in turn, then pulled out the pillows with a glove-covered hand. He removed each pillowcase, then took them over to Mike. Mike eagerly sniffed at the cotton fabric that trapped the skin tissue, oils, and scent of each missing inmate. 
The dog put his nose to the ground, searching for the same scent. He began to circle the small room, then went out through the door and into the corridor, following the floor close to the wall. He continued to follow an almost perfect straight line that consistently hugged the wall to the left side of the corridor. At the corner of the narrow adjoining hall, Mike turned left. Appleton opened two fresh plastic bags, and Mackenzie dropped one pillowcase into each. With a scent source protected, they followed Mike, while Butler remained in the room, bagging personal effects, bedding, and examining the door lock. Halfway down the narrow adjoining corridor, Mike stopped, then sniffed his way to the right side of the wall of windows. Abruptly, he jumped up on his hind legs, with his front paws up against the barred windows, barking his found-something tone. Peters had taken a place in the hall where he could watch investigating officers but stay out of their way. He ran toward the sound of Mike's bark. He was mystified by the ability of dogs like Mike that could follow a trail, obvious to them but invisible to humans. Did the dog find something? He stopped here below those upper windows, Mackenzie pointed. We'll need to look closer, but from here they all appear to be sealed. I can't see any sign of tampering. Those long windows up there across the top aren't sealed shut or connected to the new alarm system. They were fitted with the same wire cover as the rest, so they looked the same. However, because they were higher off the floor, budget considerations trumped security. Well, then that changes the picture. Good work, Mike. Mackenzie gave Mike a pat and a hug. That must be at least, what, 12 feet up from where we're standing? Keith frowned, looking from the floor to the ceiling. He estimated the distance using his height of six feet as a starting point. Peters nodded. The distance is exactly 12 feet. Those windows are 15 inches wide. So from the bottom of the sill is 10 feet, 8 inches to the floor. But outside there's an 18-foot drop from those same windows to the ground. I'll take you out. He led the way to a side door. I could see Lester slipping through an opening like that, but not Morgan. He has a chest on him like a gorilla. Outside, the three men studied the north wall of the brick building below the upper narrow bank of windows, not connected to the prison alarm system. Scanning the roof line and the windows and the surrounding features, they noticed a four-inch cast-iron drain pipe bolted solidly to the side of the bricks. That pipe ran from the roof gutters to the ground between two long narrow windows. Without speaking, all three men knew that if Lester and Morgan had managed to climb through the far left window, the drain pipe was their easy means to the ground outside. Mike whined loudly, darted back and forth, then trotted in a large circle. He's picked up their scent, but not finding a clear direction, Mackenzie explained to Peters. The rain wasn't much, but enough to give Mike some trouble. Let him smell the cases again, Keith. Appleton pulled the pillowcases from each plastic bag, one at a time, with a gloved hand. For the rest of that morning, all three officers spent their time searching, questioning, piecing information, and guessing. The scent of each felon showed up along opposite sides of the fence, indicating an escape via the front gate. Then the only other significant clue turned out to be another puzzle. Both top sheets on each bunk were missing. This is the last page of Chapter 3. Hopefully, you're even more intrigued by what's going on and what's going to happen next. So tomorrow, I'm going to offer the first couple of chapters of part two. So you don't want to miss that. Thanks so much again for listening. I really appreciate your time.